Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Don and I were with you two years ago. Uh, we've had um, a break in that with COVID and all, but it is so good to be back with you this morning. Many of you uh, we saw in the Sunday school hour, I, and I noted that uh, the video began with these words, God has promised. Well, he's promised many things in his word, but primarily he's promised a Messiah who would come and offer his life a sacrifice for the sins of his people, that those who would turn from their sins in repentance, by faith believe the good news of the gospel and believe in him and follow after him, that they would be saved. Given not only abundant life, but even eternal life. Wonderful, wonderful news. This is that major theme, that dominant theme that runs throughout the scriptures. And God has promised. In your missions conference this week, you are focused on the unreached and even the unengaged, unreached peoples of the world. Now, we spent some time talking about that in the Sunday school hour. This morning, and we had spent time in Genesis chapter 15, and in fact, uh, God promised Abram there that uh, his descendants ultimately would be as the stars of the heavens, the grains of sand on the seashore, innumerable. No one could count them. There would be so many. We, I, I noted that um, astronomers have estimated that in the universe, the number of stars are somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to the 40th power, 10 with 40 zeros after the 10. Um, and I, I can't count that high, neither can you. We were trying to figure out exactly how many that was. Uh, it's well beyond thousands and millions and billions and even trillions. Uh, it goes into terminology that probably most of us have never heard. We, we were struggling with that picture one gentleman sitting right back here helped us out a great deal. Just a brilliant gentleman. So much smarter than all the rest of us. And he helped us out. And he said, that's just a lot. <laughs> and I think it is not so much a one-to-one -one ratio, but rather God promising to Abram, later known as Abraham, simply that you're going to have a lot of descendants. Not only biological, but of faith. Paul tells us in the New Testament that those who are truly of Abraham are those who are of faith. Abraham believed the promises of God, and God counted that belief, that faith in him as righteousness. And those who follow after him and believe the promises of God and exercise, point, direct our faith toward him, toward Messiah, that we are counted amongst the descendants of Abraham, of faith. This morning, we're going to begin at the end of the Bible. And I want to ask you to turn to Revelation. Your pastor has read just a few moments ago from Revelation chapter 5. But in chapter 7, almost the same words are found. After John, John sees this vision, and after the number of uh, biological descendants, that is, those of Israel are numbered. We read in verse 9 of chapter 7, 
that John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. There it is again. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And you can read on further down there. This great number. God fulfilling the promises that he made to Abram and Isaac and Jacob all the way back. In fact, this story that ends here in the book of Revelation begins even farther back than that text we look at in, looked at in Sunday school this morning, Genesis 15. In fact, our story takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. Now, this morning, I fully intend for us to end here in Revelation. But if you would, let me ask you to turn back to Genesis 1. And even before we read from the text here, Michael Goheen wrote an article a number of years ago uh, on the urgency of reading the Bible as one story. And he tells of Alastair McIntyre, who told an amusing story about a young man. And uh, the, the, the young man is standing at a bus stop. And he just begins to speak to a stranger, someone he does not know at all. And the young man, out of the blue, says to this stranger, the Latin scientific name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, and I, there's more to it than that, but this uh, fancy Latin name. Well, what in the world is going on? Just out of the blue, he tells this stranger the scientific name of the common wild duck. You have to have some context in order to understand what's going on, don't you? Don't we? And there are a number of possibilities here, aren't there? Perhaps the young man has mistaken this uh, stranger standing next to him for another person whom he saw in the library the day before. And maybe uh, this guy had been just kind of um, um, musing out loud and wondering and maybe even asked, uh, does anyone know the scientific name of uh, the common wild duck? And so he come, this young man comes upon this gentleman he, he thought he saw in the library yesterday, and he had gone home and asked Mr. Google, you know, and came up with the name. And he happens to run across him there at the bus stop. He says, hey, by the way, the name, the scientific name of the common wild duck is da-da-da-da-da. Maybe that's what's going on. There's another possibility. Maybe he's just come from a session from, with his psychiatrist or his personal counselor, his, perhaps his psychotherapist, who's helping him deal with his painful shyness. You ever known anyone just so painfully shy, can't, can't um, has trouble speaking to someone whom he or she knows, let alone a complete stranger? And this young man has been counseled, you just need to open up and talk to people. Well, what should I say? Well, and he said, even talk to strangers, but what should I say? Well, it doesn't really matter what you say. Just start talking. So he steps up to this stranger based on the counsel of, his, uh, of, uh, of uh, the psychiatrist. It says, uh, did you know that the name, the scientific name of the wild, um, common wild duck is da-da-da? Maybe that's what's going on. 
There's another possibility. Maybe he's a spy. And he's been sent to contact, uh, to, to meet his contact at this very bus stop. And the code that he is who he is, and so that his contact will trust him, is this statement. Hey, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus. Da, 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 da. <laughs> we don't know. Because we don't have the context. Leslie Newbigin, Newbigin um, quoted a Hindu scholar once, and I quote, and uh, there in India, he said, We have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. It is unique. There is nothing else in the world like it. He says, we have enough religious books in here in India. We don't need yet another one. And to paraphrase what he's saying, he says, I've read your Bible. And if it is what it purports to be, I don't, I don't believe that it is, the Hindu guy. But if it is what it purports to be, it is the story of the human race. It is the story of the human race and our relationship with God. Wow, I think he had that right. We have a story, folks, that ends there in Genesis, that ends there in Revelation. It doesn't really end, does it? It continues and continues throughout eternity. But in terms of the book that we have before us, the end of the story, the continuing end of the story, does that even make sense? The continuing end of the story? Um, uh, we're taken all the way to the end. But, but we begin back <laughs> at the beginning. And we read in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what we discover here real quickly is that this God who speaks through the Bible is the God who has created all things. He has created all the physical universe. He has created us um, I suppose the New Testament counterpart to this uh, thinking would be, at least in one place, would be Paul there in Athens. Do you remember the story? And he had walked through the city and um, uh, seen all this religious paraphernalia. And he began to speak to the Athenians and he commended them and said, you're a bunch of you're religious folks. Yeah. And uh, you have all these altars and these deities. In fact, you're pretty smart too. Kind of like our friend who just helped us that that's a lot um, I'm poking at him <laughs> but uh, that's just a lot and um, uh, you're pretty smart uh, you even have in case you've missed something you have this altar to the unknown God let me tell you who he is you don't know him you need to know him because he's the only true God. This is God who's created me as a Jew. He's created you as Greeks. And not only that, he has determined the uh, places of our uh, existence and the times of our lives. And this is the God who requires today that all men repent and turn to him. So Paul tells them about the God of the Bible. Well, what we discover is then is that all that is it's been created by God. He owns it. He is the owner. And he does with it what he pleases. 
including all peoples. Well, you know how the story continues. Um, the story of creation. There on the sixth day, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, you know how the story then continues, how tempted uh, uh, by Satan they fall into sin. That they're not passive, they don't passively fall, they choose to sin. But they sin against the Lord, they disobey him. And uh, so uh, there in chapter 3, what God does immediately is he responds. And look there in chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat in all, all the days of your life. Now listen especially closely to this next verse. I will put enmity or hatred or warfare between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Wow. First messianic promise in all the Bible. Four components. Did you, did you, did you pick, were you able to pick those out? Number one, there's a man coming. This is going to be a direct descendant of Adam and Eve. This is going to be a human being. Secondly, he is going to do battle against Satan against sin, against death. I'm going to put enmity between him and you, Satan. Hatred, warfare, he's going to do battle. Thirdly, he's going to be harmed in the battle. On the heel, we don't normally think of a heel wound as fatal, do we? We do know, though, that Messiah died, nailed to a cross by evil men, Peter tells uh, uh, his audience there in Acts chapter 2. They laid his body in a grave. But we also know that grave could not hold him. So he's going to be harmed. He will not suffer ultimately death, the ultimate death. He will overcome death. But fourthly, he is going to deal a death blow to Satan and all of his doings, a, a head blow, a fatal blow. Now, if that's all that we had, that's all the information we had, we wouldn't know who this man is. We wouldn't know when he is coming. We would not know out of what nation or family he would come. What does all this have to do with unreached, unengaged peoples? Well, would you bear with me just for a few more moments? Um, but the fact is that we do have much more. In fact, you know how the story continues. Um, uh, the, Cain, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, sin just runs rampant across the earth. Uh, the the uh, flood during the days of Noah, the earth is repopulated through Noah's descendants. Sin continues on the march until we come to chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. And God scatters the peoples across the earth and confounds their languages. And then we come to the end of chapter 11 and we come across this man named Terah. And Terah lived over in Babylonia. And one day, he takes all of his family and he heads north and west up to Haran. And there in Haran, one of his family members is this man Abram, his wife Sarai. And there in Haran, God speaks to Abram. And there in chapter 12, we read that the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Listen to this. 
and in you all the families, all the nations, the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Mm. Perhaps, maybe, what do you think? Maybe that guy we read about back in Genesis 3.15 who would come and, uh, and uh, deal a death blow against Satan and against sin, against death. Maybe that guy will be a descendant of this guy, Abram. Yeah? Well, we're not quite sure just yet, are we? Because the story is unfolding little by little. But God promises now that um, through Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, you know how the story continues. God promises uh, a, a, a child to Abram and Sarai. Uh, he repeats that promise in Genesis 15 where we spent time earlier this morning and promises that his descendants will not simply be one, not merely the promised son, but that it, they will be numerous so that no man can count them all. Wow. The promises, the covenant promises are handed down to Isaac then and to Jacob. There in the land of Canaan, famine strikes. You remember this? Um, and um, the people are in dire straits. Uh, God sovereignly, providentially, gets Joseph down into Egypt as a deliverer. Ultimately, all the family makes its way to Egypt and is saved from the famine. There in Egypt, they are oppressed. They are uh, mistreated by the Egyptians. The Egyptians are even killing their babies. And God raises up this guy named Moses to deliver them. And he delivers them out of Egypt. You know the story of the plagues, the, um, uh, the Red Sea, walking through uh, the, the waters. And they make their way out of, uh, out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19. Take a look there real quickly. This is where God makes, uh, enters into covenant with Israel. Sometimes we think of that as chapter 20. Well, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the, the, God enters into covenant with Israel in chapter 19. In chapter 20, he tells them, if you were to remain in covenant with me, this is how you must live. You must follow these instructions. But actually it's in chapter 19, and we don't have time to read all of this, but I would direct your attention to verse 5. And six, God says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. A couple of phrases here I just want to draw your attention to real quickly. The whole earth is mine, God says. <laughs> I tell you, this God is no mere national deity. That seemed to be what many peoples in that day thought. You know, every nation had its God. Egypt had its God. The Moabites had their God. The Hittites had their God. You know, Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, he was the God of Israel. No. <laughs> there is only one God, and he is no mere national God. The whole earth is his. Wow. Um. You know, he could have chosen any nation, any people other than Israel if he had chosen to do so. But he chose Israel. He chose Abraham. 
even though the whole earth was his. And then secondly, he says to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You ever thought about the ministry of the priestly ministry? Twofold, vertically, the priest is the one who waits upon the Lord, who serves the Lord, who um, brings worship and sacrifices and all before the Lord. But he also is the one who pronounces the blessings of God and uh, relates the, the word of God to the people. Um, on a horizontal, he relates both to God but also to the people. Israel is, as a nation is to be like that. She is to serve the Lord, but she is also to be a nation of priests, taking God's message of redemption to the whole world. Wow. Mm. Well, the story continues. They uh, make their way through the wilderness, they're unfaithful there with the, idol, uh, the golden calf. Um, they have to wander for 40 years. They're in Leviticus where so many of the laws are given. Uh, a key verse in chapter 17, verse 11, it is the blood that makes the atonement. And so we be, we're introduced to the sacrificial system and the, the central um, a role that blood plays. All oh, this is not quite clear just yet, but... Blood is going to play a significant role here. Well, the story just continues and continues. You know how it was. And God ultimately under jo jo uh, Joshua brings the people into the land. They settle there in the land. They take the land. Um, there is a period of time during the judges when they are completely unfaithful to the Lord. And yet he remains faithful and raises up deliverers one after another called judges. At the end of the book of Judges, it is said that every man was just doing what was right in his own eyes, not what God would, not, would uh, declare as right. Well, we're right on the verge of the kingdom now, the kingship. We have Samuel who follows, and then Saul as the first king, and then, then David. And here is a key for us this morning. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is the Davidic covenant. God enters into covenant with David personally. And there's much more here than we have time to read. But from verses 12 and 13, God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Kind of reminiscent of what he said to Abram. Abraham, isn't it? I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow. Here is not merely a, the idea of a physical earthly kingdom and throne sitting there in Jerusalem. But wow, here is an eternal throne and an eternal king, an eternal ruler. Who can this be? Anybody have any idea? Who could it pop? Are, are you remember Genesis 3.15? It always strikes me at, at, at Southern Seminary when I have had opportunity to teach Old Testament survey. I always like to point out early on that what God is up to in the Old Testament is primarily not nation building. In other words, the story is not just about Israel. He's not primarily concerned only about nation building, but about Redeemer sending. I think that's a good thing to remember from the sermon this morning. Not merely nation building, but Redeemer sending. Oh, Israel is not to be dismissed. Israel is an important central component of the story. God did things for Israel he did for no other nation. 
God blessed her in ways he did no other nation. He entrusted his word to Israel. He fought her battles for her. He gave her victories over her enemies. He gave her land in which to live. He suffered long with her. And even when she turned against him day after day, generation after generation, he sent his prophets to them to plead with them to come back. So this is not a dismissing of Israel. It's simply to say that God's promises are much greater and much broader than merely biological Israel. To Abram, I will bless you. And in you, who? All the nations of the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's some paperwork out on the desk in the foyer. You need to pick this paperwork up. It gives you some details about the unreached peoples of the world and those who are unengaged without any gospel witness at all. Is there any possibility that God we might get the gospel to them? <laughs> well, the promise is that um, um, in Abram, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Well, the story continues. Boy, if I had time, Toby, we could just camp out on this story and go into detail. But the, I, I think of the prophets and I think of someone like Isaiah there in chapter 49 in one of the servant songs. And God says to the servant, his servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. The story is not merely about Israel, folks. It includes Israel. Israel is so important. In fact, it is out of Israel that Messiah comes. It is out of Israel that redemption for the world comes. Oh, Israel is so important to this story. But it's broader than merely Israel. Too small a thing for you to be concerned only about Israel. Jacob and Israel, I'm going to make you a light that reaches to the ends of the earth. And so the prophets speak of this one who will come. We have the period of time between the, New Test, uh, between the Testaments. And we come to Matthew 1 and the, the, the genealogy there. And we have the, uh, the, the birth narrative there. And God saying speaking through his messenger to Joseph, your betrothed Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I asked the question in the earlier hour. Let me ask it again here this morning. Where do you think he's going to find those people? He will save his people from their sins. Where do you think he'll find them? All, all, amongst all the peoples. All over the world. Wow. This is the promise of Scripture. Well, there's so much more here, but today, we, brothers and sisters, we have inherited this responsibility to take the good news of the Redeemer to the whole world. We have the Great Commission in Matthew, chapter 28. There are similar words from Jesus in Mark and Luke and John's gospel. And then we come to Acts chapter 1. You remember, the resurrected Lord is standing before the disciples. And they could ask him anything they want. And you remember what they asked him? Master, rabbi, teacher, is it now? Is it now? Is it finally now that you're going to restore Israel? Kind of put her back at the top of the heap, you know, internationally as a kingdom. 
three years with him and they didn't seem to be listening. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. In the meantime, I have something more important for you to be concerned about and that is to preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts tells us the story of the geographical expansion of the preaching of the gospel, the geographical expansion of the church and the people expansion of the gospel and the church as the gospel is preached and impacts more and more peoples and it continues to be preached faithfully until we come there to Revelation chapter 20, uh, uh, chapter 7, chapters 5 and 7. And what John sees there in heaven is this multitude, this throng from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let me close with this. Have you ever thought much about heaven, what heaven's going to be like? I know that in chapter 7, John says he saw this great multitude and they were all clothed in white. I think that's symbolic. I think it's uh, a, a picture of our purity in heaven. Uh, not even, we'll, we'll not even have the presence of sin in heaven. Purity, white. I think the actual, now, now this is just me talking. I don't, Toby, I don't have this precisely from the scriptures. But I have a suspicion it's going to look something like this. We're going to look around at that throng gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And we're going to see um, some folks there dressed in batik, uh, that beautiful hand-painted cloth in Indonesia and Malaysia that, um, that they wear. And we're going to see them, and we're going to say, there's some Indonesian brothers and sisters here with us. I think we're going to look around, and we're going to see some of those ladies. I saw a lady this morning dressed in a sari, a sari uh, from India. And we're going to see some of those ladies dressed in those beautiful, color, beautifully colored wraps we called saris. And we'll say, wow, there's some, there's some folks here from India. Um, I, I've spent some time in West Africa. I was there once, and I brought Donna some jewelry. I like to bring Donna jewelry back from different places I go. It's not expensive. Just, in fact, um, uh, didn't spend much at all on these, but... Um, uh, the women there in West Africa just seem to love big, bold colors. And they wear these big, flowing um, dresses that are brightly colored and big, bold um, uh, jewelry. And I, I brought to her uh, a, a couple of earrings and a necklace. And uh, the, they're made out of, these are not jewels, and these are not fine stones at all. They're just big, rough-cut, brightly colored stones. And the earrings are so heavy when she puts them in her ears, you know, the, those lobes just go down about as far as they can. And um, same with the necklace. And a number of years ago, she was teaching vacation, in vacation Bible school, and there's little, she told me the story later. She said, a little girl came up to her and said, Miss Donna, I love your rocks. That's what they were, just beautifully colored rocks. But we're going to see some of those ladies. We're going to say, wow, they're from West Africa. You know, we're, I could just go on and on. We're going to see some folks there dressed in um, ragged jeans and T-shirts and flip-flops. Oh, a bunch of Americans, you know. 
oh my goodness, what a scene it is going to be. I think it's going to be something like that. I think the diversity there is just going to amaze us. Wow, there's a, wow, this group is going to hit us. This group is made up of people from every nation and language and tribe and people on the face of the earth. And God has gathered them together and redeemed them in Christ and made them his own. What a sight that is going to be, folks. The task is not yet completed. There's so many who have not heard. There is an urgency. Because all over the world, there are those dying without the hope of the gospel. I remember standing before a field, of, a, a little bit smaller than a football field, there in Aceh, Indonesia, back in 2005, right after the great earthquake and tsunami. And as we made our way from the airport to the house we'd be staying in for a couple of weeks as we worked there, and as we stood there before that patch of ground, it was explained to us as we stood right there at the edge, this is mass grave. And buried in this mass grave were over 57,000 bodies. And that was only about a third of those who had died right there in Aceh. And you know, you just know that most, if not every one of those, went out into eternity without the gospel, without hope, and without ever having given to God what he deserved from them, and that is worship and praise. I don't want to end on a sorrowful note because I want to remind us that even in the face of all of these great challenges, in the face of so many dangers, hardships, in taking the gospel to those who have never heard it, <laughs> our God has promised. Remember the video? He has promised. You saw me hobble up here. I, I used to run a good bit. I don't run anymore. Um, for exercise, I hardly even walk, but I can ride a bike. So um, Donna regularly puts me on the bike and says, "Let's go," and, you know, twelve miles or so at a time. And and um, we were out yesterday afternoon, and there was a couple there that pulled up about the same time as we had in big black SUV, and on the front license plate was Hebrew that read Yahweh the covenant name of God, caught my attention. So I just asked the gentleman about it. And he said, yeah, I just thought it was a cool looking deal. I put it on my, I said, mind talking, could we talk a little bit about what it actually is? And um, I was able to share with him and talk with him about our God and his faithfulness. And it, the name actually speaks of his faithfulness. This is the God who always will be what he's always been. This is faithful to his promises. And as we think about the challenges and the difficulties, the heartaches, the frustrations, the just 
how discouraged we can become in praying and praying and praying for the unreached. And it seems like the advance is so slow. We take up offerings, we raise funds, and we don't get quite what we wanted to see. And we long to see God raise up an army from our congregations to go to the ends of the earth, and we so easily become discouraged. Folks, our God is faithful. He has made promises, the greatest promises of all, Messiah. The Old Testament is largely promised. Promise of what? Of whom? Of Messiah. The Redeemer, the one spoken of in Genesis 3.15. New Testament, largely fulfillment. He has come, and He will come again. Our God is faithful. And I hope as we think about the unreached of the world, even as our hearts break and we become sad, that we will find ourselves greatly encouraged to know that this is God's work. It is His purpose to save for Himself a people from every nation and language and tribe from all over the world. And He'll do it. He'll do it. And so let's follow Him, trusting Him. He is faithful. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word which directs us to You, which directs us to Christ for our hope, for our encouragement, which directs us to the promises of the gospel. Father, what wonderful blessings we have received as your people. And as with Abram, Father, you blessed him that he might be a blessing to others. So it is with us. You have not blessed us with the gospel merely that we would hold these blessings to ourselves, but Father, that we might give them away that we might tell the good news of the gospel even to the ends of the earth. Oh, Father, I pray for Gray Road Baptist Church that here in this place that you will stir up your people and create in this people an urgency but also a confidence that their God goes before them and that our God will indeed accomplish all that you intend to do. Oh, Father, let that, as we have rehearsed even this morning, put steel in our backbones to know that we are not alone in this task. It is your task. It is your purpose. And Father, you will see it accomplished. And one day, there around the throne of the Lamb, oh my goodness, so many, from so many peoples and tribes and languages and nations, even from those that at this moment are untouched by the gospel. You will make it so. Let us be encouraged with this promise and in this confidence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.